If you have a Bible, please turn to Luke chapter 4. Please turn to Luke chapter 4. My name is Matthew, and I will be bringing God's word to us this morning. In Luke chapter 4, verses 1 through to 13, we read about Jesus' testing in the wilderness, and it says this, Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, left the Jordan and was led by the Spirit into the wilderness, where for 40 days he was tempted by the devil. Jesus ate nothing during those days, and at the end of them he was hungry. The devil said to him, If, if you are the Son of God, tell this stone to become bread. Jesus answered, It is written, man shall not live by bread alone. The devil then led him up to a high place and showed him in an instant all the kingdoms of the world. And he said to him, I will give you all their authority and splendor. It has been given to me and I can give it to anyone who or anyone I want to. If you worship me, it will be yours. Jesus answered, it is written, worship the Lord your God and serve him only. The devil led him to Jerusalem and had him stand on the highest point of the temple. If you are the son of God, he said, throw yourself down from here, for it is written, he will command his angels concerning you to guard you carefully. They will lift you up in their hands so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. Jesus answered, it is said, do not put the Lord your God to the test. When the devil had finished all, these, all this tempting, he left him until an opportune time. Now, none of us can maintain to always have a full life filled with success and victory. The most talented and savvy of us amongst us this morning and in our communities cannot escape the undulations of life. What if you could overcome all of your faults and flaws? What if you could become perfectly wise? What if you could have faith without wavering in whatever your God might be? What if your life were perfectly pleasing to others? Then surely your God would protect you and all would go well, right? Middle class people tend to look at the poor and assume they are not working as hard as them. People with healthy families tend to look at those who are struggling and assume they don't have enough care going on in that setting. You see, if we're not suffering in our culture, there is a tendency to take just a little credit. It isn't grace. It isn't luck. It is because we're living good and smart wise in our lives and have made smart decisions financially, emotionally, whatever the case might be. But here we see in history... Someone who lived a perfect life, yet things went terrible. You see, this temptation seen for Jesus immediately follows his baptism. And after the temptation, we then see Jesus going on to his mission and ministry, and then we know leads him to the cross. In other words, this is the opening rounds, and you could kind of say things will start, will start to go a little bit wrong at this point. But what does this chapter or this text show us? Well, one thing it shows us is that 
Evil in our world is complex, as is power. You see, here stands Jesus, who, as Christians, we believe, is the Savior. He is our ultimate hope. And God the Father has said that Jesus' life is perfectly pleasing to him, just in the preceding verses. The Holy Spirit has just descended and fallen upon him. And look at what happens. Affirmed by God, and then, and then, into the clutches of the devil. Now, you and I might testify in our own lives. You might have known people that have just about to start being commissioned to do something great, only for the next moment not to be the wondrous result, only to be, it went wrong. We think of Chadwick Boseman, an African-American actor, the Black Panther star. You know, he was going to be the new shining light of Hollywood for a certain demographic. Commissioned in this world only at age 43 to die of colon cancer. You think of Keith Green, age 28, after miraculously coming to Christ. Him and his wife wrote, um, there is a redeemer. At age 28, in a plane with his children, they put too many people in the plane, and it crashed on his Texas ranch, only to die, right at the height of his commissioning. You see, you could argue, no matter your belief system this morning, that nobody is exempt from trials and tribulations. Now, for the Christian, they have incredible resource because God's mysterious plan often turns us, the church, into something great. But for the non-Christian, though, what is the purpose? Now, to help us understand this text, I'm going to look at four things this morning. I'm going to look at a framework for evil. What's available in our cultural worldview? I'm going to then look at who is the devil We're then going to see how Jesus responds and then finally ask, what does this mean for us? What's our framework for evil? Who is the devil? How does Jesus respond? And what does this mean for us? What is my framework for evil? Well, I'm not going to assume that everybody in here this morning visiting us knows Jesus, loves Jesus, and confesses to be a Christian. But before you think the idea of the devil is a primitive idea, let's perhaps explore some of the alternatives. You see, our secular worldview perhaps believes that there are no material forces, no soul, no spirit, potentially no demons, no angels. Everything is natural. Scientific explanation helps us. And in this worldview... Educating the ignorant, changing social systems, and providing better psychological treatment is a way that we overcome society evil. And you see, this line of thinking, and some others we'll explore in a second, comes from two kind of institutional or perhaps um, old school views of evil. One is dualism, one is monism. Don't worry, I'll explain those terms. Dualism, you'll know. Mortal combat, yin-yang, white, black, bit of white and bit of black in each. In this worldview, there are equal and opposite forces at play. There is good, there is evil. There's this ongoing battle that will happen till the end of time, which means there is no absolute triumph that is possible because evil is no or more less powerful than good and vice versa. In this worldview, there are multiple power centers at war with each other. 
And ultimately, in the end, there is no hope because this battle will rage on for eternity. The other view is that of monism, or sometimes called pantheism. And this is the idea that, that uh, uh, it, well, it goes to the other extreme. Everything is part of God, and God is part of everything. Everything is ultimately one. Individual selves are something of an illusion, and we are all connected in a deep way. There is no shared humanity. Evil and suffering are not eternal and undefeatable, as in dualism. Instead, they don't really exist. You could say it's really an illusion. Now, if that is the, if you're on a farmland or someone said to me, you know, I love tinned vegetables because someone else has done all the processing for you and you can just put it in your mouth and eat it. If dualism and monism is being on the farm with raw materials, the tinned vegetables for you this morning in the modern secular world is actually you borrow from both of these views if you're a skeptic of the Bible's views. Because in a world of relative truth, what you're saying is one person's freedom fighter is another person's terrorist. It just depends on how you see it. In other words, evil is just an illusion. The other point that we tend to borrow here is that it's almost like you, perhaps in the 70s or so, we started to have this thinking. Hannibal Lecter says it very well in the film. He says, basically, if I'm a bad person, what you need to do is you need to identify what went wrong in my life for me to become a bad person. Was it my upbringing? Was it my culture? In other words, I am not inherently evil. Something must have had to happen to me. It needed to be a poor social setting or system, or I had some poor psychological treatment. You see, a secular worldview holds some of these views together in, today, in today's world. But what the secular worldview doesn't hold is that, that behind everything, there is a supernatural, intelligent being who is orchestrating evil. You see, if you get rid of the idea of sin or the devil, then what you are left with is every bad deed has merely psychological or sociological roots. But Christianity gives you something different. It gives you an actual devil. And if it is true, then the evil in the world cannot be reduced just to your human choices. Don't get, don't get me wrong. The Bible is very clear that human beings left on their own are capable of great harm and great sin. And these choices are a significant component of the matrix of evil in the world. But Christianity tells us, as we read in this text, there is more to evil than just the count of our choices. And you can attribute this to an actual demonic force. Now, a little bit like if I was to prepare a sermon on why we should overthrow Putin in Moscow, I would expect, if he got hold of that, events, he would try and do something about it. I'm very aware of talking about our great enemy this morning, who is here and who wants to cause distraction. He wants to overthrow. So what I want to say is, whilst we're going to focus on him, you know, the Bible is a very unique book. Most books have a beginning, a middle, and an end. The Bible has a beginning, a middle, and a beginning. And what we see in the beginning, the second beginning, is that this enemy is defeated. 
So whilst I preach this message this morning, it is not a message of defeat. It is a message of victory. However, we have to understand what we're up against, right? Because the devil is a fallen angel leading fallen angels. And God in the end overcomes him with an electrifying promise that blows through the pages of the Bible. You see, the Bible says that evil is way more multidimensional, nuanced, complex than science or our modern worldview can ever suggest. It maintains that there is really a force of evil in the world and behind it a supernatural intelligence. The problem for us today, though, church, is that we adopt some of the wider worldviews, even into our Christian setting, and so often we can underestimate or misdiagnose the power of evil in our own lives. You see, if the Bible is right and this kind of evil exists, then surely it would do us well to learn what the Christian worldview is so that we can come against it. So my first point of this, before you think the idea of an enemy or the devil is a primitive idea, question your own worldview. And if you have to borrow from the resources of Scripture to justify your own worldview, why not change your worldview? So secondly then, that's our framework, first of all. Secondly, who is this devil that we read in the scriptures? So we understand the devil to be the chief demon. A demon is a fallen angel who sinned against God. And whilst a lot is unknown about this topic, the Bible does give us something to work with. Demons, as I've said, are angels created by God. And Somewhere at some point, they rebelled against God. And we read this in uh, 2 Peter 2, Jude chapter 6, and other places in Scripture, and some parts in Ezekiel. But somewhere between God declaring the worth was ve- pronounced it very good and the temptation and fall of humans, most people think some point between there, something might have happened. Now, Satan is the name given to the chief devil, given to the name of the character in this parable here this morning. And what does his name mean? It means adversary. He is the chief fallen demon and the great opponent to the cause and to the people of God. A little little bit like the old singer Prince who had about 16 names as his professional career as an artist. Well, so Satan uh, has uh, quite a few. Let me read these out to you to give you some idea of the character we're dealing with. The tempter, Beelzebub, the enemy, the evil one, adversary, deceiver, great dragon, father of lies, murderer, sinner, All those names contain or convey his character and his activities. Not a great CV. We are first introduced to this character back in Genesis, and we see him appearing at points uh, uh, along the timeline in the scriptures. We see him tempting the first Adam. We see here in the Gospels him tempting the second Adam. That's who we're dealing with. Secondly, then, what is his game plan? As I alluded to in my introduction, deep down, I think, in our worldviews, we cling to this simplistic idea that if we are good, life will go well. However, if there are demonic forces out there, then it stands true to reason that true goodness and true godliness will attract and stir up powers of attack, right? And this is what we see here with Jesus. 
He has baptized. God the Father pronounces words of affirmation over him. The Holy Spirit descends upon him. He is about to go and be commissioned for a life of ministry. Attack. You see, going back to the beginning, middle, and the beginning, if you go back to the second beginning, for all of his power, the enemy sits under the authority of Jesus. So whilst we will understand his game plan, what I want you to know as truth this morning is that he can be successfully resisted. And he can be put to flight, not in our strength, but in the strength of the Holy Spirit. The enemy ultimately knows he's not going to win the match. So what does he want to do? He wants to make your match as miserable as possible. Because he can't win the match. So he wants to make it miserable, because he can have some influence potentially over that. He cannot rob us of heaven, so he wants to make the journey painful. If he cannot destroy our, our souls, he will want to bruise our heels So let us be wary of despising him or thinking lightly of his power or influence. Now, subtly here three times, we see the enemy attack in three ways. We see, um, if you are the son of God, tell the stone to become bread. One commentator says this is getting to the heart of unbelief, persuading Jesus to distrust the providential care of God the Father. Is he really really going to? Make that become bread. The other prong of attack is that of worldliness, one commentator writes. I will give you all their authority and splendor that it has been given to me, but you must worship me. One commentator swears that they're trying to, he's trying to persuade Jesus to grasp at worldly power by unlawful means. The concession was small, but the promise was large. I'll give you lots. Follow the world. Follow me. You can have all of this. Don't we subtly believe that in our own hearts? And then finally, the one of presumption, probability. Jump off. They'll save you. The angels will come and persuade to an act of presumption. What is he trying to do here? The father has just assured the son that he he is his beloved. And Satan immediately attacks. He wants to attack your heart. His main military goal for the church is that you would lose your certainty in the father's unconditional love for you. Church... I love you, and with you, I am well pleased. Really? Are you sure about that? Your sister's not a Christian. Your son doesn't follow Christ. Your mother-in-law, look how you spoke to her. Look what you did last year. How can God love you? He wants to attack the very nature of this statement. You are my beloved child, and with you I am well pleased. Have you known that attack? Have you known that attack on your way to church this morning? You see, the enemy doesn't come with bites in the flesh. He comes with nibbles at the heart. 
unseen, in the quiet, in front of the mirror, on your own, in the car. And Christian, if you think of your heart's identity as an engine, there are two types of fuel that can power it. One will do it cleanly and efficiently. The other one will pollute and destroy. The dirty fuel is this, the one of fear, the need to prove yourself, the need to be needed by somebody else, the need to express yourself fully and without restraint. One fuel, though, is clean and will not lead to weariness or disappointment, and that is this. You are my son. You are my daughter. With you, I am well pleased. What? I love you. If you are running the engine of your life on anything other than the truth, then he's got you. Because what he does not want for the local church, he does not want gateway church. He doesn't want us going into a new building with new passion as a body declaring together, we are the beloved children of God the Father. And man, oh man, are we going to do something powerful in our community. He doesn't want that. He wants to destroy your grasp on the truth. He wants to take your fingers off of the truth and one finger at a time pull it away. And he wants to do that to your heart. But why your heart? The Bible tells us our heart is the seat of our emotions. It's the source of our fundamental commitments. It's the seat of where we hope, where we trust. From an overflow comes our thinking, comes our feelings, comes our actions. What the heart trusts, the mind justifies, the emotions desire, and the will carries out. And if Satan can get you to consent with your mind that God is a God of love and grace, but in your heart to doubt it, he's got you. I believe it's true. I believe he died on a cross. I know he loves me. I know the doctrine of adoption. I get all that. But I know I need to behave in such a way to be approved of. But I must do so and so to feel loved and valued by my pastor, by my friend, by my parent, by... That's... That's the cunning. And he hates this message this morning. Because church, we're going to be equipped for the mission. Because every time that doubt comes in, you go, flee in the name of Jesus. I am a son. I am a daughter of the Most High. Your assurance in Christ, do not underestimate it. Because you will doubt it time and time and time again. And we cannot doubt it. There are very few things that we can be certain of in this world. And as the Christian, we can be certain of this. I am the Son of God, and with him I'm, he is well pleased. Yeah. J.C. Ryle says, Assurance goes far to set the child of God free. It enables him to feel that the great business of life is a settled business. The great debt of life, a paid debt. The great disease, a healed disease. And the great work, a finished work. All of the businesses, diseases, debts, and works are then by comparison small. And in this way, assurance makes the Christian patient in tribulation, calm under bereavement, unmoved in sorrow, and not afraid of evil tidings. In every condition, content, contentment for it gives him a fixedness of heart. It makes him feel that the Christian has something solid under his feet and something solid in his hands. Church, you have something solid to hold on to this morning. 
right now, that thought that came into your... Someone had a thought this morning, said, I shouldn't go to church, not me. In the name of Jesus, we want to pray against it. If that's you, just say it. In the name of Jesus, not welcome, right now. How does Jesus respond? You see, Jesus, not like a Marvel Avenger, doesn't take off his glasses and laser beams come shining out of his eyes to take away the devil. He doesn't have some sort of force to rise him up like some metallic thing and throw him like the genie from Aladdin and flick him over the horizon. He doesn't do that. He doesn't deal with the devil in a superstitious, magical way. There's no blasting with glory. No special effects needed. Because our best defense against the enemy is not incantations. It's rehearsal after rehearsal after rehearsal of the truth. Look how Jesus uses the Bible. Deuteronomy 8, Deuteronomy 6, Deuteronomy 6 again. When on the cross, what does he use? Psalm 22, verses 1. My Lord, my Lord, why have you forsaken me? Church, this is so important. When we are in our moments of pain, shock, stress, pressure, the very first things that come out of us are the most primal things in our being. You see, when Jesus was poked and prodded and pushed, what comes out? Scripture. Someone says around about 10% of all of Jesus' quotations and allusions to in the Gospels are Old Testament scriptures. When you know your scriptures that well, you process your thoughts, your feelings, your behaviors through this grid of biblical revelation. Because when it's secured that deep inside of you, it is difficult for the enemy's lies to get a foothold because every time it comes, you're not vulnerable to the attack because you know your scripture. Uh, It's a famous quotation in our local church because there's an argument of where it came from. There's a couple of people who want to claim to it. But I'll say it again, and I'll say it came from me, (laughs) just to add to the complexity. Uh, Christianity is not a playground. It's what, church? A battleground. Christianity, true Christianity, that's important, is a fight. There is vast... Quantity, there is a vast amount of religion in the world that isn't true Christianity. It's content with a sleepy consciousness, with a passivity, with a complacency, going through the motions. I haven't read for a, my Bible for a month, but it's all right. You know, I haven't really prayed for some time. It's okay. Oh, I'm really looking forward to watching something on TV tonight. Just a passive... I'll go to church. You know, it's passive. We're all guilty of it. Friends, true Christianity is a fight. True Christianity is not content with passivity. True Christianity is not content with a complacent church in a community. Now notice here the devil in verse 3, 5, and 9 can lead and can say, but he has no authority to make Jesus act or behave in a certain way. As we face the enemy and as we know he has no ultimate authority over the church or over us, what we do have to do, Christian, though, is we've got to put on our boxing gloves. We've got to fight. We have got to fight. Are you up for the fight? 
Love UFC. Love boxing. Why? People pounding each other. <laughs> love is probably a strong word. I've enjoyed a few bouts. But there's something about that UFC Christianity. There's that fight to us. This isn't Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs. This isn't Fantasia Christianity. This is fighting stuff. But we're on the winning side. We're not fighting it on our own. Church, you've got to fight to read your Bible. Fight to be in life group. Fight to attend Sunday services. Fight to sing songs to Jesus in your car. Fight to be doing this together with friends in the church. Fight to memorize scripture. Fight to read books. Fight to attend events that are going to build up your soul for eternity. Fight. 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 Are you up for the fight? So what does this mean for us? Please forgive the passion. It has been a long week of preparing for this sermon. Of, I was speaking to Richard earlier, who spoke this morning, of just... Fight after fight. On Tuesday, out of nowhere, I had this sudden moment to myself, and Donna was doing something, the kids were somehow, I was just standing in the kitchen making a coffee, and it was like, bam! You've taken two weeks off work, you fool! Who do you think you are? They're going to come back, you're going to get fired, or worse, you're not going to get fired, they're going to think less of you. The company's going to explode. In the moment, it's been like that all week. So this is the fight back this morning. This is sticking the proverbial up at the enemy and saying, sod off in the name of Jesus Christ. That was not a text from the scripture. That's just <laughs> my personal thoughts on the matter. What does this mean for us? Well, firstly, I think it means three things. Church expect trials. Let's not go into life with blood. We can't go into life like this, can we? Keep your eyes open. Do not disconnect the temptation of Christ with his baptism. Satan comes right after his commissioning. If we are living members of Christ, we should too expect such temptation. See, to believe that moral goodness equals a good life is too much of a simplistic of an idea. Even non-Christians don't believe that. God has purposes for us, individually, corporately, on the other side of our wilderness experiences. So that what? So he can lead us into great places. Church, expect trials. Secondly, church, it's an obvious one. Know the scripture. And we cannot implore this enough. CBR, life groups, Sunday services, reading on your own, audible, Bible. If Jesus Christ did not presume to face the forces of evil without a profound knowledge of the Bible in his mind and his heart, how dare we think we can do it another way? He was perfect. Church, I'm preaching that to myself. I have become so lazy. Has anyone else become lazy in their scripture memorization over the past 12 months? Just me? Yeah. Show of hands, come on, let's do this. Let's just, we have, haven't we? No, Matthew, but I know John 3.16. Everyone knows John 3.16. <laughs> they even know NFL games in America. <laughs> Church, let's keep each other accountable. Let's hide Scripture in our hearts. 
Expect trials. Know your scripture. Thirdly, see your Savior. We have another resource for this spiritual warfare. You see, Jesus has literally been tempted himself. The Christian, like no other worldview, has a resource that's incredible. Hebrews 4 tells us that Jesus is our great high priest. Priests were counselors, healers, and we are told that Jesus can empathize with our weakness because why? He was tempted in every way, yet without sin. You see, the entirety of humanity can look in the mirror, and if we are totally honest with ourselves, we know that not all human action, not all thought, not all activity is pure, is right. We don't need to tell each other that we are not without error. We instinctively know this because we fall short not only of our own, we fall short of our own standards of living, but the Bible tells us there's something greater we fall short of, and that is God's standards. You see, left to our own, the attack, sorry, left to our own, we have the word of the Lord, but through Jesus, we also have the Lord of the word. Because on the cross, Jesus absorbed on himself all accusation. And the truth is that for you and for me, if the enemy comes to tempt us with his distortion of the truth, there is an element of truth in there. Because you and I are not without sin. On the cross, Jesus took all of your sin, all of your shame, all of your guilt, all the things that you had done to other people and people had done to you. And on the cross, he blew it apart. It's like the famous Mike Tyson quote, everyone has a plan until they get punched in the mouth. The enemy had a plan until the cross gave him the eternal knockout. Because on the cross, Jesus says, I absorb everything of yours, all your sin onto me, so that God the Father can look at you through the Son and say, you are my beloved. And with you, I am well pleased. You have this resource for eternity, church. And let me conclude with this. In 1873, while crossing the Atlantic um, on a steamship, the ship was struck by an iron sailing vessel, killing 226 people. And on that ship were the four daughters of Horatio Spafford. Annie, aged 12, Maggie, aged 7, Bessie, aged 4, and an 18-month-old baby. His wife, Anna, was on the boat, but she survived the tragedy. And when she arrived in Cardiff from Chicago, she sent a telegram back to Horatio saying simply, saved alone. Shortly afterwards, Spafford traveled to meet his grieving wife, and instead of giving in to the temptation to doubt and turn his back on Christ, he was inspired to write this well-known hymn. And I'll conclude with this. When peace like a river attendeth my way, when sorrows like billows roll, whatever my lot thou hast taught me to say, it is well with my soul. My sin, O oh, the bliss of this glorious thought, my sin not in part but the whole, it is nailed to the cross and I bear it no more. Praise the Lord, O oh, my soul.
For me, be it Christ, be it Christ hence to live, if Jordan above me shall roll. No pang shall be mine, for in death as in life thou wilt whisper peace to my soul. But Lord, tis for thee, for thy coming we wait. The sky, not the grave, is our goal. O trump of the angel, O voice of the Lord, blessed hope, blessed rest of my soul. And Lord, haste the day when the faith shall be sight and the clouds be rolled back as a scroll. The trumpet shall resound over everyone's name this morning, and the Lord shall be, then the Lord shall descend, and we will all say, It is well with my soul. It is well with our soul, church, because of Christ's work. Let's pray. Just take a moment in the quiet of your heart and in the name of Jesus, cast out those lies. In the name of Jesus. In the name of Jesus. In the name of Jesus. Oh, Heavenly Father, the assurance is ours through Christ the Son. We declare as a church it is well with our souls because of what you have done on the cross for us, Jesus. In the name of Jesus Christ, we pray for the hurting. We pray for those who have experienced difficulty because the lies of the enemy have crept into the heart. And in the name of Jesus, we pray today is a day of freedom, a day of joy, a day of triumph a day of dancing, a day of singing, a day of delight, because, Father, you declare that we are your beloved, and with us, you are well pleased. Amen.